0: there is a balance because Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists did the work that they did so that we don't have to. And so there's a certain, there's for me, I'm starting to learn balance is that there is a certain struggle that I can undertake, but there is also a certain way that I need to take care and care for myself because this is, this is the gift from those folks, you know? And so I'm I'm constantly thinking about that
1: balance.
2: Jason and
1: Yvonne Lee, wife,
2: husband, father, mother, actors,
1: producers, and seekers,
2: educators explorers of identity
1: you're listening to logger lane spirits a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails
2: join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on LagraLaneSpirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly.
1: Armed with American flags and their father's pistols with coats of armor made from faux bear skins and wearing Walmart Viking helmets of plastic. They stormed the White House with mouths open, screaming of revenge and reclamation. They considered themselves righteous.
2: Nah, 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 those motherfuckers were salty that the president didn't win and they wanted to do something about it, so they did. They took their whiteness and their defiance of the word no and tried to repeat history. 1814 to be exact, back then, The British stormed the White House, stole ledgers from President James Madison's office, and then, like Angela Bassett, lit a match, watched the whole White House burn, burn, motherfucker, burn! This is... How We Author History.
1: Lit a match like Angela Bassett?
2: (laughs) I was feeling some kind of way about that, that historical day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel you, babe. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of Laguerre and Spirits podcast.
2: What's up, friends? This season, Yvonne and I are exploring all things identity. We'll revisit moments in American history through the lens of our own family's roots and the legacy of the generations that have come before us. Tonight, we're asking ourselves, how do we author history?
1: In episode four, we questioned if we are the authors of history and explored our responsibilities, artists, and creators to contributing to the narrative that is woven into history.
2: In this episode, we're taking action and talking about how. Assuming we are the new authors of history, this episode explores how we do that. Meaning, with what tools, which voice, which methods do we work to change, expand, and highlight a new narrative that is based upon the old? How do we empower ourselves and others to get it right? (laughs) Finally. Further, How do we identify within that journey? Do we speak for ourselves and our own experiences? Do we speak for a community, a family, a generation? In what ways do we lead by example to author history?
1: Oh, dear, there's so many questions. Sir, sir, I am so parched, so in need of elevation. With what spirit will you wet my whistle this evening?
2: Ah, my love, I am... Glad and grateful that you asked. Tonight, tonight, we enjoy, ayo, ayo, we enjoy the Manhattan. (laughs) The Manhattan is one of David Embry's six essential cocktails. So throughout the pandemic, I have done a deep dive over the past, about 18 months into uh, texts and recipe books, um, bartending literature uh, from throughout the years, books like Jerry Thomas's uh, Bartender's Guide, from 1862. Tom Bullock was a bartender in St. Louis in the 1920s and 30s. He has a book uh, of of recipes called The Ideal Bartender. More recently, Death & Company has released a bar in in, in New York and in Denver. And here in LA, uh, they've released their recipe books. They have two books out. But David Embry was a at-home bartender, much like myself, uh, who uh, released a book in the 1940s called The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. In it, he lists what he considers to be the six uh, essential cocktails for any at-home bartender to pour. And uh, they are the Manhattan, the Martini, the Old Fashioned, the Daiquiri, the Sidecar, and the Jack Rose. And um, this recipe that we're drinking tonight is his recipe from the Manhattan. For our first season, I thought it important to include both the, the historical examinations and the personal examinations that were going on along with the craft cocktails that we're exploring, I wanted to get really kind of grounded in in an understanding, a timeless understanding of the pour of these cocktails. Now, part of that history is nobody nobody really knows who invented the Manhattan. It's just a damn good drink. There's lots of stories, lots of theories.
1: Well, how do you make it? I, I never get a chance to watch you make it. How do you make it? And maybe next season, I get to make one.
2: Next season, season two, episode one, You are going to make your world-famous Yvonne Margarita.
1: Famous in the world of Yvonne.
2: Listeners, she makes an amazing margarita. But that's for next season. That's a teaser for next season. The Manhattan is uh, two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce sweet vermouth, dashes of angostura and orange bitters. And by now, uh, our faithful listeners will understand that I say dashes. Uh, A lot of recipes call for one or two or three dashes. I am a bitters fan, so you can't under-bitter a cocktail, in in, in my estimation. <laughs> the garnish is a brandy cherry. This cocktail should be stirred in a mixing tin. Oh,
1: what do you think, then? Oh, my goodness. delicious, d double and I cannot <laughs> wait to finish this drink. The Manhattan has no history. So if we wanted to be like our children's history books, we could just say...
2: Hey, hey yo I created this and this is how it went down boom
1: exactly right <laughs> we'd write that down
2: yeah yeah. we could we could make it up in any way that we wanted to make it we could say you know it was it was created at a at a bar in uh, New York we could, and, we could
1: tell them that you did it that you made it when you went to go do Romeo and well, Juliet in the, a good
2: lie a good lie we're a good Good lie always has a sense of history in it, right? Like somebody who says, like, (laughs) this is the way the founding fathers really believed, right? Like the daughters of the Confederacy in the 1910s with their whole lost cause myth of their uncles and fathers and grandfathers of the Civil War generation in the South who lost the war. But they still went around creating statues all around the South. They really kind of recreated the story. So I think we really should be examining whose story it is and who is telling it. Everyone should tell their own story. We should listen to other people as they tell their story if we are not of that uh, community. If they tell their story wrong, we should hold them to the fires and get them to tell their story correctly, but we should also give them the chance to speak it. And that's what's so frustrating to me as as a historian
1: yeah i also think that when it comes to um people telling their own story or if or even if let's say that you wanted the platform for it but that you at least have to understand that there's a gap between what you know and what they know and and that you don't you don't take complete ownership of someone else's history you just have to we have to give space so that the, the the listener the person that who's reading the story understands that it's from your perspective um, and it's in support of another. So I think we can really share in each other's culture and history. Just being super clear, uh, you know, that if you are an English person telling an American story, that you're doing it from your English perspective.
2: <laughs> yeah, It's <laughs> um, the, the preface of every history book should really have the, be written in the preface. The caveat being, this is their point of view. They've done their research. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, Yvonne, of coming up in in Chicago theater, Dennis Sachek, the artistic director of the, of Victory Gardens when, when we were coming up in the late 90s. A Polish gentleman from the South Side of Chicago would tell stories from the Black perspective, from the Jewish perspective. And I always remember as an intern at his theater, I always remember him saying, I asked ask him the question, you know, how do you get your authenticity? And he would say, I surround myself with the most vocal, <laughs> quick-witted individuals, artists, storytellers, actors, crew, playwrights, from that community and i let them tell their story and i'll come in with a little bit of directorial notes here and there just to kind of help help shape it but i'm not getting in the way of getting this their story correct right
1: couldn't we argue that the confederacy the, the people who are telling the history of the confederacy were telling their history i mean if we're going to go in that direction
2: i hear what you're saying yvonne i but i think the brutal truth that we are revisiting, I think, with the um with the big lie now of Biden not winning the election is a story uh retold from literally the creation of the of the lost cause that it was a war of northern aggression, not mm-hmm. of slavery, not against slavery, not not of the other reasons why the war, the civil war being was fought. So I think the retelling, yeah, they're telling it from their Perspective certainly, but their perspective is mired in a lie. You know, it's kind of like South Africa going through their Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in the '90s. It's you know mm-hmm. uh, traveling around Berlin, going downtown Berlin. You see the the museum for the murdered Jews of Europe in downtown Berlin, Germany. Right? There's no denying the history. I think that's really what what I'm hoping to to gain. I hope that we move forward in a way um, as storytellers really kind of just accepting other people's, other peoples that of groups that we don't, that we are not in accepting their stories and their points of view as they accept ours. And this.
1: Yeah. I think the thing to add to that too, you know, I just asked that question just to see like what would happen. Do you know what I mean? Because there are people who are going to be saying like it's, it is their perspective. But I think the the thing that is the difference is that, It was, it is the one that was that history, the Confederacy point of view is the one that has mostly infiltrated our educational system, right? So there's not an equal uh, platform for all different points of view about what went down. And so what the daughters of the Confederacy were able to do is get their version of the story of the story out the quickest and the furthest.
2: And we've been talking all throughout this season about how we're living kind of through the third reconstruction period in, in United States history. The first, of course, being the Civil Rights Movement after the Civil War until 1877, the second mid-20th century. This era we're living in right now is reminiscent of all of those various actions. This this post-George uh, Floyd world that we're living in is, is reminiscent of all of that. And that makes me think of the anti-racist program that you launched at our kids' school last year. Yvonne, do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit?
1: People are out in the streets protesting and, and I just, I didn't feel like that was my way of, of expressing. And so I, I, I was listening to all these podcasts and I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I do something about this? And I was thinking about our daughter going into middle school and, how the sophisticated questions that they were already having and the things that they could handle and i was like i want to try to do something and 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 even before that i wanted to try to figure out okay where do i stand within the community that i'm that we're in right now where our children are about to spend you know they spend 40 50 hours a week they have like by far the most influence on our family than any other one person outside of our family I really wanted to know, like, where do I stand with you? This is what I want to talk about. Would you like your children to be a part of a conversation about social justice and explore what anti-racism is and understand what it is to be an activist and figure out how to question all the social ills and problems that are happening in our world? Because I know that you're already talking about it in class. Uh, These kids are talking about it in class. And where where do you where does my family stand with yours? Where does my Filipino, yeah. Black, <laughs> Russian, Nigerian, <Yeah.
2: laughs> you German, know,
1: multi-ethnic yeah. family stand yeah. with yeah. many of these families that are here? Um, and 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 the response was really beautiful. Once I put it out there, everybody's really was really trying to do the right thing, and and I it, it was very inspirational to see that. When I ask the question, you know, would you like your child to be a leader at our school in terms of making change, and have them be the ones that are figuring out? Because we, you know, in the end, we need we need uh, innovation, and so unless we are teaching this to children earlier, and and unless we are um, having them. You know not just take the history that we're telling them but also see it from their perspective we're just going to get the same old same old same old so um um yeah so i created the kindness and in action initiatives because i definitely felt <laughs> stopped in the moment like i had all this emotion and no way to express it in a positive way and um and what I found through the process of creating by talking to different parents and talking to kids and talking to administrators and asking questions, and reading books. And really, you know, what I'm asking people who are the what who, you know, I might see as the oppressors to educate themselves. I also had to go through a lot of education from a lot of different perspectives and figure out what history I didn't understand uh, that I didn't know about and what was left out even at, you know, this far into life with three kids, I was like, Oh, there's so much that I don't know. So I wanted to know, like, how do we create community right now? And, and I realized it was like through conversation, it was through collaboration. It was through connecting with people. And it was about understanding where, how they feel and where they are right now and them understanding me and man, you know what? That takes a lot of energy. It (laughs) really, really does. I don't think people actually understand Like how much emotional vulnerability, emotion and vulnerability that it takes to actually shift the paradigm. Um, And we're just, we just don't grow up in a, in a community that allows us to be that all the time, you know?
2: Yeah. You've reclaimed the narrative and you've started a conversation and and, in doing so you're attempting to reclaim a narrative that is, that is lost. A lot of people don't want to do that work it challenges people on a, on a, on a core belief level. And, and I applaud mm-hmm. you for insisting upon that. It's similar in a way, reclaiming the narrative, right? Telling the story, getting the truth told. It reminds me of mm-hmm. our short film that I wrote and, and directed that's hit in the festival circuit now uh, called uh, lifeline. It's very similar. And in, in the attempt to a, have the conversation in order to, to use it as a tool, right? To get to the truth, Mm -hmm. to the best of our ability.
1: I think I also realized too, you know, throughout the process of learning, because this was a huge past year of learning and growth is that I, I'm not, I am not because I'm a a woman of color. I am not without bias. I come against things that I just because of my age or social class or any of those things where there are things that are, That I don't see, but uh, I'm so grateful, you know, to to really recognize it in myself and have the space to kind of learn about all of that in the way that being able to look at history, personal history and universal history and and see it from many different perspectives to just there's just so much that I never questioned when I was a kid. And I didn't really realize how I just oh I'm just supposed to read this, write a paper and and get a good grade. Um, It's just not what as we grow up, you know, how can I author history without actually looking at things from multiple perspectives? Well, one thing I I did want to bring up, Jason, is, uh, you know, as we're thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about like, you mentioned it a little bit earlier about you being the author of history in episode three, we did a whole reveal about some information your mom had kept from you, uh, about your birth dad. And she was the author, you know, talking about personal history, universal history. She was the author of your history in some ways. What do you think about that?
2: To remind audiences, we, uh, I uncovered that my birth mother, the man she told me who was my birth father, it turned out that he was not, the father, according to DNA tests that, that that were taken later. The problem was, the man who I thought was my birth father, he also thought he was the birth dad. So a lie that I believed for 20 years, he had believed for 50. So we had no reason to, I had no reason to question it until the DNA test revealed that. In line of what we're talking about today, Yvonne, what I think really is that she's allowed her story, right? Mm-hmm. There's certain parts of her own story that aren't my story what is part of my story i feel i have the birthright to to learn the truth about but mm-hmm. i'm not here to judge her for a lie she told a story that it's kind of the same type of examination of, of of history people tell their stories to promote a belief in something we can get to the root cause of what that something is but with regards to this part of my personal story I feel like my story starts on August 20th, 1971, and I'm open to whatever information that comes from that point. What happened before that is her story. And gaining the truth out of all of that has really kind of, after all of these years, several decades later, right, has given me a a calm and a Centering that I I truly don't think I had before. I needed to get that story told, which is why I searched you. You've known me for 25 odd years. I've been on the search since we've first started meeting. It was actually you, Yvonne, that, that let me on the search because I was like, oh, she's really cool and pretty, and maybe she'll marry me and we can start a family together. You know, <laughs> oh, you
0: and I so wanted sweet. to be able to,
2: I wanted to tell, wanted to be able to tell our future children what the story was. Yeah, and that is the segue into bringing in our guest, right? Documentary filmmaker, Jacqueline Olive.
1: Jacqueline!
2: Jacqueline. Jackie is out there in those streets knocking down history walls in, in her documentary filmmaking and going up against the powers that be with knowledge and a camera.
0: Well, I love that you're asking the question. I think it's really important to uh, look at it. And I'm always thinking about it. My work is very much centered around um, the American story and what is the American story? What's the accuracy around it? Whether, are the elements that's missing who's telling the story? Um, and does that compromise or does it enhance the veracity of what's being said? Mm-hmm. And my work is really very much about not rewriting history because I, you know, I, and, and I'm currently working on projects that have to do with the lost cause. And so that was a very blatant effort to rewrite history around falsehoods, right? But my work is really about filling in the gaps and helping people to understand the entire story. And those gaps are large in a lot of cases. And so um, what we come up with is fragments of understanding what's going on in this country, what's gone on historically, and what's going on currently. My films are really about um, rounding out those narratives so that um, you hear the voices of people who are often overlooked or mischaracterized or,
1: or erased altogether. I want to make sure that our listeners, I want to give just a little introduction. That was uh, Jacqueline Olive that you all were listening to. She lets us call her Jackie. We feel so honored to be able to do that. And she's a tremendous filmmaker and friend and we met Jacqueline through a documentary she directed, produced, and wrote called Always in Season. Amazing film. Uh, it was at Sundance several years ago. And we all just hit it off uh, right right off the bat. And I remember held a conversation after the premiere that someone hosted at their house where you brought in people who spoke about always in season. And it was one of the most amazing things I'd I'd been to. And there was such truth going on. And I was like, I had no idea what to expect. It was not like this normal, like after premiere Sundance conversation. It was like, really like, how do we process that lynchings today are still happening and that there are people who are studying this. So it was, it was just so wonderful. And so always in season, everyone was awarded the 2019 Sundance Film Festival special jury prize for moral urgency That's why that conversation was so important and was featured twice on Democracy Now. Uh, She was the director and producer of Death is Our Business, which was broadcast on Frontline PBS and PBS World with a digital launch on March 23rd, 2021, and we will be screening at Black Star Film Festival. Yay, August 2021. Yes, yes. Jacqueline's current project is They Tried to Bury Us, of which she is a co-director with Brie Newsome. They Tried to Bury Us is a first-person documentary film that picks up where news coverage left off when activist and filmmaker Brie Newsom made headlines uh, with the historic direct action protest. Uh, She scaled a 30-foot flagpole at the South Carolina State House to remove the Confederate flag following the racially motivated shooting of nine African Americans at Mother Emanuel AME Church in 2015. So I want to know more about your journey about this. Jacqueline, This is these uh, first-person stories are such an insight into the worlds of many. Do you have anything you'd like to add about that project?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you, Yvonne. It's an honor to be here with you and Jason, because I remember when you all were conceiving the podcast, and it's so exciting. It's a great concept. And so to be among the conversation is really a gift for me. So thank you. They tried to bury us by the name, by the way, the title comes from the saying, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And it's really about this resilience of folks like Brie Newsom, who's just an incredibly courageous woman, an incredi- incredibly courageous activist. And we're looking at that action, certainly, that happened in 2015, which was really the pivotal moment in the Black Lives Matters movement and other resistance movements with direct action. There hadn't really been very much direct action since the, since the sixties and since the, you know, you see the protests at the lunch counters. And, Mm -hmm. and so I just, I remember that moment and was just really moved really beyond words to see Brie, a black woman up there doing the thing that everybody wanted to do, which was take the flag down at the time. Mm -hmm. And so to see, and to understand, to get to know her and understand the bravery and the risk that she took is really exciting in telling the story. And we also follow forward to today and look at how her activism and her organizing in North Carolina has evolved. She's married and she she has a, a newborn child. And so to understand how she's evolved as a woman,
2: oh, I
1: think wow. is a really inspiring story. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's, that's incredible.
1: Oh, wow. No, I, I remember when I became a mom, it all changed. It all, like the right? moment, yeah. you know, yeah, right, Jacqueline. So when you become a mom, like all of a sudden, even the work that you thought was so important before, it all of a sudden has a completely new meaning.
0: <laughs> it has all kinds of shades, and it's really interesting to hear from Brie. Like, you know, one of the questions we ask is Would she do that again? Would she give it more thought? Because she actually prepared to die that day. She, she had prepared to give her life for, for that um, cause, for that action. The question is, you know, as a mom, do, what risk do you take? And so it's a, I just think it's a really interesting to see the evolution of her work and, you know,
1: just her presence as a black woman on the planet. That is a perfect intro into the part of our story of our podcast, where we say, are you ready for your cocktail confession? <laughs> Jackie?" <laughs> <Olive>. <laughs> I think so. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: <laughs> I'm going to ask it before I do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say cheers.
1: Oh, yes. If we
2: can raise our glasses and, yes. uh, and, and then we'll, we'll dive on into it. Yeah.
0: Cheers. Mm.
2: Jackie, we are all authors of history, right? I often say, because I was a history major, I was a, trained as a historian before I was trained as, a, as an actor. Everything I, I I do comes through, a, or I, at least I attempt to do professionally, comes through a, a lens of history. I'm deeply influenced by history, which was why I was so excited to meet you at Sundance when you were premiering Always in Season. The first cocktail confession question we have for you is how do you personally author history? And it's you could process that question in any way uh, that that you would like. One thing that I would just like to hear from you about is uh, whether educationally, historically, your own personal history, what brought you to this place in your life where you explore these important historical aspects of of our uh, zeitgeist
0: yeah such a good question i'll start with where my mind went first which is as a mother um, having a child and raising a child means that you are authoring history it's a way of of bringing forward all the things that i know about the beauty and the um, abilities and the presence and the complexity of Black folks is to bring another Black person onto this planet and help to raise them. And so that's, you know, one of the most, the more profound ways. I grew up in Mississippi and I grew up in, I'm, I'm turning 55, actually, um, in, in a week or two.
2: Happy early birthday.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Thank you. I grew up in a time <laughs> in which my family was the first to integrate, one of the first to integrate our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first to integrate my school, and so and and I went to the same school because it it wasn't a exactly rural area; it was more suburban, in as much as in Mississippi it can be suburban. Mm -hmm. But it's the school that uh, I went to from fourth grade until twelfth grade. So it's it's that yeah. So you're in the same place, and you're getting to know people over over many years. And and by the time I graduated, it was still less than ten percent black. I graduated oh my class huh. in eight years. And so for a long time, I understood, and prior to that, I lived in, because the segregation lasted in Mississippi and particularly in my hometown of Hattiesburg into the 80s. Yeah. And so I, well, definitely the late 70s, early 80s. And so I had also had the experience of living in a neighborhood that was all Black, um, certainly mostly Black, if not all Black, segregated. But the benefit of that, which I tell my son, who's grown up um, in international environments, right? The benefit to that is that I knew what Black people looked like in all of their variety and how they lived. Um, And so it was different socioeconomic levels. It was certainly, there were different class in terms, if you think about class in terms of like the things that inform class, art and culture, that kind of thing. There was a variation there um, and certainly economically and politically. and, And it was just a really, it was segregation. And at the same time, it was the opportunity to really understand the fullness of what it means to be black hmm. and and to not have that said to me. So I didn't have all of the stereotypes internalized because I could see what what black meant all around me as opposed wow. to, to how my son grew up, which is he grew up in very diverse neighborhoods and, and, and certainly Inside the home, he had a good understanding and sense of his blackness, but outside of the home, there weren't as many reflections and yeah. reflections of it. I had these two worlds. And the other thing that I'll say is that at the time, even people who weren't white or black, um, folks who were Hispanic, other ethnicities, they would anglicize their names and identify as white. And so it was very much this striation, and I knew both worlds. What was always interesting to me is, and I had many friends in in both those worlds, what was interesting to me was what was not said about race, Mm. that there was very little conversation about race, about the racial terrorism that was so intrinsic in Mississippi in particular, right? right? And so we were living all around, and you could literally feel it in the atmosphere, in the trees, um, in the woods. Um, I had woods behind my house that I grew up in Clayton. In. Mm. I mm. knew that there was a conversation missing that was really never had growing up there all the way until I turned um, 18 and, and left for college. My work has really been about bringing to the forefront and to the mainstream those things that I know and those things that will really help us as Americans to be able to see each other more clearly. And so I think that in that sense, that's really, I use film as a way to author history. And I actually, I came to film late. I went to graduate school to study documentary film at 39. And so I never thought about being a filmmaker. I never really thought about storytelling in this way, but I had little kernels of inspiration yeah. that people dropped to me along the way. I remember seeing Toni Morrison at one point in an mm-hmm. auditorium and she talked about, you know, if you don't tell your story, who will? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you have the ability to, then you have the obligation to do that. And so those were little seeds that were planted in my head. Mm.
2: That's awesome. I had a similar moment with Ruby D. Uh, she came to mm. our, my, my my college and and spoke. I went as an actor hoping to hear her talk about her her acting. And she she talked a little bit about her acting, but she talked more about her her activism. And and that was a mm. really extraordinary thing for me to experience as a as a young man. That's extraordinary. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Sure. And history is such a great background for drama. It gives you those layers and complexity that you yeah. can bring to the world.
2: Yeah.
1: The part that struck me the most is the silence about race. So for me, it's when last summer happened with George Floyd and all the subsequent actions that happened after that, I was like, what do I do? I don't know. I, I'm not gonna go out walking in the streets. That's not my forum. That, that's not how I'm going to protest, but I kept just sitting on like, what am I going to do? And how am I gonna talk about this? I feel like we've been investing in films and trying to tell stories and have a theater company and all this. And it, it just comes to that point where you go, well, have I done enough? Haven't I already been speaking this, walking this, talking this? And then it came down to, okay, I'm a mom. I'm not gonna send my you know, daughter who's about to go into middle school unarmed without knowing how to have these conversations, not just in our home, but to have them with her classmates. Right. Cause that's a different dynamic in the safety of our home versus how do you have it with a group of people who you may not know where they stand, praise independent filmmakers who understood mm-hmm. when I said, could you please come and do this Q and A for us <laughs> about your film? And I would bring it to the school and have these like fifth and sixth graders conduct Q&As with the filmmakers about the subject matter and conducting workshops like trying to figure out how to connect personally like not just about like like how do we author history you go into school with questions not answers right those answers should only lead you to more questions and you just need a breadth of knowledge and someone to ask you to be a leader and then you step up with with you know with your knees shaken <laughs> you just go ahead on and yeah. do it. Yeah.
0: I think that goes back to your point that you were making earlier, Jason, about um, when someone is telling a story about uh, a community that they're not from. Mm-hmm. The other problem that I have with that is that it is not about asking questions. It's not yes. acknowledging that there are certain things that you don't know Yeah, and that you, um, that you are interested in seeking out. And so it's that vulnerable place that I think is really important. I know you all in theater know this, and certainly in filmmaking, is that you have to come from a vulnerable place in order to really move past what you know, and what you know is always limited. You can't know everything, and I look at a lot of, I review applications for different funders, and I look at a lot of applications, and when I see folks who aren't from that community, and there's no place in which they acknowledge that, it tells me that they're not asking the questions, and they're not being vulnerable Mm -hmm. in the way that's really needed to really understand um, folks with complexity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I, I'm i struggling to remember the name of this book right now. But one of the themes that they talked about is a Korean woman who is a poet and a writer. And she talks about how, you know, you don't speak like you don't speak about something. You speak adjacent mm-hmm. to it. You speak near it. Because mm-hmm. when you speak near it, you acknowledge the gap. Between you and the person that you're talking about. And in that gap, that's where the conversation happens because then we can share culture, right? So nobody gets to be the, yes. there's no, just like, I am always the authority on something because even as artists and, and as storytellers and authors of history, if you have an interest in another culture, you have to, if you frame it through this idea of speaking near, where you yes. admit the gap, you see the gap, here are the questions, then people have room to enter into the uh, an actual conversation. I love that. Yeah. It, it, it's
0: being in step with the community as opposed to looking in on them and being the, the authority on their story, but really wanting to understand. And I do that. I mean, it's a natural process of the way that I approach films anyway, whether it's my community or another, because I understand that there, I, there are limitations to what I know.
2: That makes you the artist that you are, right? Like it's, you know, we ask questions, right? Like, you know, and, and we, we share unabashedly our point of view we respectfully silence ourselves when others are sharing their points of view from their perspectives. And that is, in my opinion, America, right? Like, you know, that's if if we were a functioning, healthy, vibrant ecosystem, we would be pulling from the best of us all. And when we are, we do. When we aren't, we don't. And we're kind of living through it. You mentioned the lost cause. Jackie, we're living through another attempted... Whitewash of a of another major moment that happened in our history just back on January sixth.
1: Yes. While we were speaking, I looked it up. "Minor Feelings: An Asian American Reckoning" by Kathy Park Hong. That's the name of the book, which is interesting and, in its own way, does exactly what Frederick Douglass's book uh, speech does, which is at once lift up and at the same time tell the truth about yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yes. I, I, I think it, it's, it goes hand in hand because if you don't see the the motivation for really um, taking the country and other people to task is because you have this optimism that it can be better. Yeah. And when, you, mm-hmm. when it's all yeah. negative, then you're empathetic and you're not engaging. And so they go hand in hand.
2: If you lean in on any subject with, with love and or any, not just subject, but any, call it ecosystem, any identity, any any peoples, if you lean in on the themes and issues that are facing these peoples with love and understanding, or at least the attempted love and understanding, you might be able to move the needle. If you come in from a dissonant tonal place, you're only adding to that kind of like cacophony of horrible news from uh, social media that... I'm going to block you or I'm going to defriend you or I'm going to, I'm not going to listen to your point of view. Right? Like, so I, I just think these themes need to be dealt with, with a nicely poured craft cocktail and, <laughs> and, and with, truth, and with truth and honesty. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I'm curious, Jackie, do you ever find, cause sometimes I think when people, when we talk about, uh, social justice, sometimes uh, black people can be kind of become this monolith, But do you ever find that in the storytelling, like when you're talking about lynchings, when you're talking, when you're talking about the Confederate flag coming down, like, do do you ever find that other black people kind of wonder why you're telling that story?
0: I do. I, you know, when I was um, filming for Always in Season, I filmed in a a community, a city called uh, Lawrence, South Carolina. And I filmed in in, um, eight cities across the country and they didn't all make it into the the final cut. And and this story didn't, but it was a really great story of a shop called the Redneck Shop that was erected in the middle of downtown. And there was a Black minister, Reverend David Kennedy, who fought for 16 years to close it down. The Redneck Shop sold Klan robes, neo-Nazi memorabilia, and had white supremacists meeting there in that space for 16 years. And uh, Reverend Kennedy fought to get it closed down and ultimately became the owner of that shop. So it's a really, a really triumphant story. Um, But, it is the community in which I, I'm really good at getting access and getting people to, to talk and do interviews. And it was really the first time that I got no's and I got a lot of no's and a lot of those no's were, um, from black folks. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons why, but I think that when you're of a oppressed group, and the pressure is on you to blend in and not mm-hmm. to make waves. And certainly the consequences of making waves are far greater than if you're not. Um, if you're white, for example, in a white community, then people will ask, why are you doing this? Why are you um, stirring up trouble in the same way that someone who's white and racist might not want that story to be told? And so mm. I've encountered that. And, and then there are people with, with I'm sure, just a different point of view, a totally different point of view, if you dug all the way down past the fear um, and past the pain and, and the natural desire not to to bring that, to bring that up again. Yeah. If you dig be- below that, there are some people who may simply believe that a Confederate flag, for example, is fine. Black folks are, there's such a diversity as a people Mm-hmm. And we have a, a multitude of views, and and you know it, it, just because it's it may be different from mine doesn't mean that I'm I'm even interested in judging, and I'm actually more interested in understanding it. Yeah,
2: I want to sure. lean in on that a little bit too. That's that's amazing because one I, I, one of the most extraordinary elements of, of your extraordinary uh, Always in Season for me was the uh, reenactments. I'm curious if you could speak to uh, those reenactments and the individuals involved in in these uh, lynching. Moments that are so very generationally such a well, it's complicated, right? I'm just wondering it's if you could speak to that. Yeah,
0: it's very intense. And I filmed in Atlanta and Monroe, Georgia, which is where in um, um, 19, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about the Lincolnville mama said 18, but in, in 1956, there were two couples who were lynched. Um, murdered on the Morris Ford Bridge in Monroe, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. There's a group of people there, uh, a, a diverse group of people who come together to reenact um, that lynching because they want to make sure that the victims are never forgotten. And they believe that some of the perpetrators might still be living there. Um, and I talked to, um, so I filmed there for four years, all the way through 2014 with them and um, and talked today to Cassandra Green, who's the director Of the reenactment. Mm. But I thought it was really important. You talk about authoring um, history and your own story is it's really the reason, you know, there's a lot of controversy around the reenactment. Should it happen? Um, Is it too graphic? Is it pulling apart the community? Have they gone on long enough because they started in 2005? Is it time to stop? But for me, it was really important to include that story in the film because it was an organic expression of the community's need to tell the story as they'd seen it, mm-hmm. and because things like journalists historically, journalists would write in the newspaper for people not to talk about a lynching, and so there's been this cover up historically. There's certainly this den- denial that even go- goes on today in communities about lynchings. I can go into communities where it's heavily document- documented, and people will say, "No lynching happened here. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. You're, you know, you're just trying to stir up trouble." Yeah. In Monroe, they are bringing the stories to life in connection with, so they, they did the founder, Bobby Howard, who just recently passed away. He um, spent at least 20 years, at least two decades, collecting oral histories from the family members of the victims and from other people in that area to accumulate the information that then is used in this dramatization. And so I think it's a really important expression of what people are doing and doing creatively. One is that they're not waiting any longer to ask for permission. And they're thinking, how can we fill in the gaps of this narrative that is certainly African-American, but it's certainly um, American. And it's certainly about what's going on in this community so that people can know, first of all, and so that if people are moved to do something about it, that they do. By the way, family members of some of the suspected perpetrators have reached out to them to say that my relative was involved. Um, And so there's been some, some success around those efforts. Right. The beginnings
1: of some kind of
0: healing. Yeah.
2: Almost a South African truth and reconciliation, almost that's the goal, right? Like some, some type of societal understanding of, and non-denial of what this history is.
0: Yeah. I mean, imagine the reverberations that if you, first of all, if you watch a murder, how traumatic that is. What if your entire community came out to watch a murder? Thousands. And that murder is of your people. And that person is generally criminalized, whether it is accurate or not. And so there's a stigma that, that then Black folks and communities have to live with because of connection to that person. There's a fear, there's a terror. And so people are living with the residuals of that even now. And it's evident in the fact that people have, since 2005, come together to hold this event despite the controversy, despite not having any funding, any financial support to do it.
1: That is such a great example of how people, how would a person empower themselves to to tell, to get history do you th- can can we get history right? Like, let's say you can empower yourself by doing the reenactments. Are we getting it right? Or can we get it right?
2: I'm going to pour Finally, another cocktail on that. that question. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going I'm to listen, Jackie. It's a great question. And I'm just going to listen and it's pour a, another cocktail. It's
0: one of the, yeah, yeah. It's, if you if you have the answers, please uh, pipe in. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things I was exploring with Always in Z's, and then I kind of explore in other projects is whose truth is valid, right? There's mm, this mm. memory, this collective shared memory in communities that is not documented. And then there's this documentation that is often inadequate. There would be no reason, one of the things that the reenactors portray is that there was a pregnant woman who was lynched and that the baby was taken from her stomach, cut from her stomach, Um, and there's no documentation of that. Um, Her family members say that that in fact was true, she was in fact pregnant, but there would have been no motivation for journalists to come and talk about and parse out the level of violence, particularly at a time when there's cover-up, right? So whose truth is valid? is a question the other the other question is a question I explore the other question which I think really gets to what you were saying Yvonne is what is the truth is there an absolute truth um, and I think that we all bring our perspectives to moments and I just I just want to bring as many of those perspectives together mm. in that moment so that we mm-hmm. can see it and mm-hmm. then people can decide the audience can decide mm-hmm for me, it's necessary. And so part of the work, Good you know, I talked about this, this lack of this conversation, right? Which is what I've lived with is what I've learned is that you can't move past something unless you move through it. And it's mm-hmm. all the emotions and it's, and it's all the emotions that we are equipped to survive. Yeah. And so for me, there's no reason to be timid about it, certainly to be thoughtful, but not necessarily timid about, Exploring them all and being present with other people um, really authentically and fully, um, I think is really important.
2: How do you personally make that choice with your work? Uh, I mean, you were talking about Brie earlier and, and, and of course, Always in Season. What is it yeah. that resonates in, in you when you say, because I know you have a journalism background, when you say this yeah. is a story that, that I need to explore, what are the boxes that you're looking to check?
1: Right. And then, and then, how do you like? How do you choose your battles, and how do you choose what you think your obligations are in that? Oh, such a good question. So because
0: people are all the time saying, um, "I have this great idea for a documentary," <laughs> not knowing that I already have ten ideas <laughs> stacked
2: up. order.
0: So I can't choose them all. And yeah. They can be very good ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, one is that you know, just uh, just having the skills and the knowledge of a filmmaker, I can tell if there's enough information for an arc. Mm. Over a feature film, that's one thing, right? Like, is the character dynamic enough? And will they sustain an arc um, is really the biggest thing for me. But Mm. before that, it's this gut reaction to the story. Does it, it's not just, is it interesting intellectually, but is it something that I would be passionate enough to stick with for at least two years? Mm. Documentaries right. take a minimum of two years. It took yeah. me ten years to make ten all season. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yes. So is it something mm-hmm. that's going to drive me enough to stay with as long as I need to stay with it? And and for me that uh, generally is about again it's about filling in the story of Black folks, people of color, people who are uh, who are marginalized whose stories aren't told in the fullness um, of who they are and how they show up in the world
2: Mm -hmm. are my
0: criteria. And so those are the kind of, kind of things I think about. And also the other thing is to what end. Hmm. Um, I'm always thinking early on who my audience is and to what end am I telling this story? Um, What will they get from it? And the same thing for the people that I feature on the screen, like Claudia Lacey, um, Lennon's mom Mm -hmm. in always in season, who's her, her son Lennon was, found hanging in in 2014. And so what, if I don't find out the answer in the form of a whodunit, whether or not he was lynched, what is it that I can offer Claudia in telling this story to what end hmm. do I mm-hmm. take up someone's time? I filmed with her for four years. And so um, I'm always thinking about what's the benefit of, of, of the work that I do.
2: Can and I right? ask as she, what is the end for her in this exploration, if, if you don't mind that question?
0: Well, Claudia believes, she said this early on the, in probably the first interview that I did with her, and certainly in the last and the last conversations that we have, is she believes that she's going to find out what happened to her child. Mm. She pushed for an FBI investigation to be opened, and that took a while. And then they held it open for 16 months before they came back and very perfunctory told her that there wasn't enough evidence to move forward. Um, evidence of a murder to move forward and yet she still is convinced that she's going to find out what what happened to her son and she as she was then is she is and I'm sure she's she is still I haven't spoken with her in a few months but we talked for the longest and when I moved out here I've been in California for a year I, and I moved to North Carolina to be closer to filming and so I was very close I was an hour away from Claudia and I saw her frequently she is from the very beginning which is a thing that I'm interested in, and I don't see often enough in, in in film and in these kind of stories is how do you move forward? And she, from the very yeah. beginning, in the midst of what could be crippling grief, I you know, I think if that were my child, I don't know that you'd still be able to get me up off the floor. But Claudia was busy working and and out of her ethic about how she moves in the world working and raising her older son's children, and she's still doing those kinds of things now. And, and there's this optimism in the human spirit. There's this openness that she had from the very beginning, which I thought was really remarkable, in the midst of anger and uh, dealing with the loss
1: of her, her baby. Lennon was her youngest child. I have a question for you. Cause Jason and I decided to to get into this, you know, we were, we're actors, but we decided, and we were like, oh, there's not stories we want to tell people that we want to work with. So we decided to like be a part of the answer. And then Mm -hmm. you, you find that you're doing all this stuff, trying to talk to the right people. But I feel like there's like a power structure that denies access as you were trying to rewrite and become a part of the history. There's a power structure that exists out there that either is denying it so that you can only get so far. And then there's another part of it that um, empowers you. So I'm just, I mean, what do you think about that? Like there's something, there's like this invisible hand that we're not acknowledging, right? That's saying you can only get so far. And you've spent four years telling this story, but I'm going to make sure only a hundred thousand people see it because if it gets to half a million, things might change. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So you're so in my head,
0: Yvonne, and I see that we we think about the same things because I am often from what I know of you, and I, I feel like I'm pretty spot on on this is I'm very much about getting things done and doing them well and finding support around that. Like you said, like there are people in the power structure who are facilitating your work and your your storytelling and your and your art. And you know how to do that, or I certainly know how to do that. I won't speak for you, but I'm thinking we have this in common. And so I forget sometimes that there are these obstacles because I've had so many successes and done so much despite it, that I forget that, of course, there are obstacles. That's the, that's the issue is that there's this power structure that is keeping you, that is very much set up and often overtly trying to erase you and erase your story. Uh-huh. And so in the process of knowing what agency I have, I sometimes forget, I'll, I'll, I'll get frustrated and I'll remember, oh, right, that is the work that I'm doing. Uh-huh. You were mentioning earlier about the murder of George Floyd. And, and that was a time at which I'd made Always in Season. I had spent, um, we screened the film in at least 100 festivals between um, 2020 when it released theatrically until the pandemic, until things shut down. And then George Floyd is murdered and pr- preceded that by um, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all those cases. And I mm-hmm. was devastated. I thought, I for the first time thought, do I need to do this work? Because I'm doing everything. I'm having these conversations. People are getting it. Light bulbs are going off, I can see, mm-hmm. in the middle of discussions that I have after the film. So what does it take? And and right. so I think it comes out of this sense that you do have agency and you can get things done and you know that you can affect people. But then I forget that, oh, right, this is the thing. And so I need to be prepared to deal with the thing if i'm going to do this work um and uh-huh. so i just have a little pep talk with myself sometimes
2: yeah yeah, yeah. Has, had some work in a documentary called blood is at the doorstep about uh hmm. dondra hamilton's uh murder in milwaukee back in uh, 2014 hmm. and we brought out maria his mom and, uh, and and a couple of other family members to uh his, his brothers to share their experience and we kind of connected uh, this documentary film work into uh, a stage play that we were producing through our uh, theater company and to amplify voices, right? And amplify experiences, whether it's to five people or 50,000, whoever it is, to experience all of this is what what we should be doing with our time. I'm emotional talking about this. It's important, but I'm also inspired talking about this oh, because this is what we should be doing
0: it, it's um it, and i'm sure it's the same for you it's an art form for me filmmaking and so uh, as an artist it is it's integral in every aspect of my life and so it's something that i love doing and am not stopping because it's challenging Yeah. i you know speaking of frederick douglas one of the projects i'm working on i'm directing a few episodes of a series for a streamer. Mm. Part of the conversations about Frederick Douglass. And there are yeah. all these ways that I have to, in the process of that work, that I have to push to make the production, um, which is integrated when I show up, and I'm the only woman often in meetings, right? And so I have to push the production to understand issues around race and gender in ways That can be frustrating at times, right? And then I think, oh, but Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists, they dealt with this all the time. And so I need to just buckle down and do the same. I'm capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. But one of the realizations that I came to recently, an evolution of that thought, right, is because I'm always, I I work hard and I uh, work to get things done. It occurred to me that there is a balance because Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists did the work that they did so that we don't have to. Uh-huh. And so there's a certain there's for me, I'm starting to learn balance is yeah. that there is a certain struggle that I can undertake. But there is also a certain way that I need to take care and care for myself, because this yeah. is this is the gift from those folks. Yes. you know. And uh-huh. so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about
1: that balance. I think that the work that we're all doing and, you know, and I'm. We're, we're coming to the end of our time no. with you. We keep talking with you forever and ever, Jacqueline. But the thing that is that I remark upon the most as we're talking about trauma of what's happened to us as as Americans, it's, a, it's the love that this all comes from. If we didn't yes. love being Black, being Americans, love this country, believe in the love and the hope that people have to offer, that we just have to, all of those kinds of things, I think that, Otherwise, we wouldn't continue the work. Well, it's for our doing. children
2: too, right? It's for our children yeah. too. I mean, it's, it's the for their children. Generation. It's for the next generation and the it's next generation. Love. Yeah.
1: But Jackie, I'm wondering, how else can we find you? Would you like to share with our audience if they get done with this podcast, they're done driving, and now they're going to go sit in their living room and they're going to find you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I would be thrilled to be
0: back anytime. Awesome. Um, to find me, my production company is called Tell It Media. So if you want Tell to find me online. Tell it. it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Tellitmedia.org, T-E-L-L-I-T, media.org. And then you can learn about Always in Season at alwaysinseason.net. My production company is just a really good way to get updated on projects that I'm in process on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it'll take you to other websites where you can learn more. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Jackie.
1: This
2: is Jackie, so thank great.
0: you. You guys are so instrumental in the industry. And so I appreciate you so cheers to you guys cheers
1: yes cheers we must seize the bike the pen the camera we must push back against the powers that be and make sure our voices are heard and included the past is the past but we are the future and that's where we should be (laughs)
2: The podcast is produced by the Lagre-Lane Group. We would like to thank Lagre Lane Spirits co-producers and writers Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Seracey, co-producer Matthew Seracy, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marley, The Launch Guild, and Toby Gadd for his original piano improvisation. Also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guest Jackie Olive. Remember to grab our Manhattan recipe and show notes by going to LagerlaneSpirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
1: Cheers. Cheers, baby.